Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally, uh, who is with the Taipan Publishing Group. She has just come out with a new book called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Just tell people a little bit about your background and what you do uh, in addition to the book with uh, Taipan these days. Uh, well, I've been with Taipan for about seven years, and recently we started a new newsletter called Smart Investing Daily, of which I am the managing editor editor currently. Um, and that goes out every day online and basically it gives, it, it puts the power back into the reader's hands. It, it gives them the tools they need to make smarter investment decisions. We kind of dissect some of the more conf, uh, complex investment styles or strategies and kind of um, lay it out nice and simple so that they can make better and smarter financial decisions. And what was your motivation for writing Barbarians of Wealth? Well, my co-author, Sandy Franks, was um, reading about the AIG bailout along with the huge, lavish retreats that um, they were pro- providing for some of their uh, employees. And when she read that, she was like, oh, my gosh, that's barbaric. They're using our money, and they're going out and having these wild parties. And that phrase kind of stuck. And she was like, well, these guys aren't the only ones that are, that are being a little bit barbaric and who are using our money, our, and which turns into becoming ill-gotten money in a way because they've pretty much pulled the wool over a lot of investors' eyes um, to kind of fulfill their own fantasies and, and, and make their own uh, companies appear more valuable. So what she did was she kind of took this idea and came to me, and I've got a little bit of a background in history, too, and she said, I have this idea uh, about writing about these modern-day financial barbarians, and I want to compare them to those barbarians of the Dark Ages. So we came up with a list of people like... Genghis Khan or and Attila the Hun and the Vikings, and we found that in doing that comparison, the same tactics are being used. It's it's still greed, it's still ruthlessness, but but we're not using Mongolian bows anymore. We're using um, high speed financial programs to make trades and stimulus programs that are supposed to bail out our, our economy, but are, is really just funneling money money into the coffers of the very barbarians who took down the financial system in the first place. So that was kind of the impetus for the book, and it really got us going. And the the comparison the, the comparisons in the book are pretty stark. All right, we're going to go to in some details about the different uh, barbarians and how there's some things to learn today. But as an overall principle, before we get to the details, what are some things that people can learn from studying the barbarians of the past as to how they should be investing their money today? Well, well I, I put a quote in um, the introduction of the book that's from Sun Tzu who wrote The Art of War and it goes something like only um, only can one thoroughly underst- only when one thoroughly understands the evils of war can they profitably carry that carry it out and I'm paraphrasing now um, but that's a, a key um, phrase that we kind of wanted to explore a little bit more and what it basically says is that you have to kind of pull back the veil and really understand the underpinnings of uh, and the motivations of who we're terming the barbarians of wealth today to find out really what how they work how they're taking your money and how you can protect yourself from them 
So we did just that, and we dedicated a whole section to the book at the end to talk about how you can protect yourself um, from these financial attilas, and that's really more than half the battle, is learning how to protect your current assets from further erosion during economic turmoil. Uh, let's start at the beginning with some of the major barbarians of history and what are some of the things we can learn from them. And you start with Attila the Hun. Uh, so just tell us briefly about Attila and uh, kind of what he did that kind of echoes today. Well, Attila was um, kind of a, a novelty in, in his age. There were a lot of Hunic tribes about, but nobody had really uh, coalesced them into one uh, fighting machine, and that's kind of what Attila did. And when he when he found that he could create these alliances between um, the tribes, he found that the Huns were much more powerful and much more terrifying, and they could extort much more uh, uh, tribute from Rome. And that's exactly what he did. He charged on. Uh, he invaded almost invaded Constantinople three times and pretty much almost knocked down the walls of Constantinople. They had people fleeing, um, and they had um, exacted like three times the amount of tribute by the time they were done. So I think in, in exploring how Attila was able to form these alliances, the, the draws that we can make to today's financial institutions is that there are a lot of interconnections going on between the institutions themselves and between the financial institutions and our government. So we liked focusing on Attila for that very reason. So explain that. You, you, you say in here that... Um... Uh, he got tribute from peace. It basically, it was, it was almost like the mob uh, getting uh, hush money or, or quiet money not to uh, have them come and disrupt their business. Is that basically the way he worked? And is that way you're saying it's happening on Wall Street today to some extent, too? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that's a really good analogy. And, and what Attila did is he would come and he would invade and he would wipe out a lot of um, land near some major trade routes on the Danube, and he would threaten to press closer to Rome unless they said, all right, well, let's just pay you off in, in a certain amount of tribute. Um, and then he would say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll accept that, and he would go away for a year or two. And then he'd come back and he'd press further into Roman territory and say, well, now I, I want some more money. And... Uh, I think that tactic really kind of worked because at first Rome was, you know, big and um, it, it had a lot it had had a lot of money at its disposal, and it was fine with being able to pay uh, the Huns off. But what they what they didn't realize is that he would keep coming back, and if they didn't, you know, put up stronger defenses, he would just press further and further and further and take more and more and more, which is exactly what he did when he started banging on the doors of Constantinople. Um, and eventually, even the Roman senators had to sell a lot of their silver tables in order to finance the tribute um, to pay Attila to go away. So I think if, if you look at what we've been doing with these uh, stimulus programs and with um, the bailout that we've done with some of the major financial institutions, that hasn't really fixed the problem. We've just thrown money at it, just as Rome has done with um, Attila. So we haven't really fixed the problem, and these institutions are growing again. We've seen record, um, record-breaking record earnings reports from folks like Goldman Sachs just a year after the crisis, and they're getting bigger again. And I don't think we've done enough to defend or to put up some good defenses for our economy against these uh, ever-growing financial institutions. So you're saying it would have been better not to have done the stimulus program, not to have done the bank bailout, because that was just only feeding the appetite for more in the, in the same way as Attila would, wouldn't be uh, 
satisfied, he just kept coming back for more. In a way, yes. I, I think uh, we had let things get so far out of hand that we needed to provide some sort of stimulus for the economy, even if it was just for some sort of confidence booster. However, this money came without attach, no strings attached, in essence, and we pretty much just handed it out. And instead of that money trickling down into the lower parts of the economy to keep the, the wheels greased, these banks that had gotten bailed out hoarded all this cash, and they were just holding on to it. And it didn't do what it was intended to do, except make those banks a little more flush with cash. And um, as we're moving forward, we're seeing the, some of the cash start to get back into the economy, but it's, it's now the choice of the banks with what they want to do with it. And we've seen in the past that they've not made very good decisions, or at least decisions not made in the best interest of the American public. So you're saying that when the bailouts happened, the government should have had more strings attached on them lending it out or getting it out in the economy instead of just hoarding it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they had um, the banks that did receive some bailout funds were subject to some stricter uh, regulations, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of the banks wanted to pay back those tarp that tarp money um, in a, in a fast manner instead of spending ten years under the thumb of the government, but I don't think those restrictions really uh, were strong enough, and it didn't force that money to, to be put to good use at the time. Your next barbarian is Charlemagne uh, and the Anglo-Saxon Wars. What, what uh, can we learn from his uh, techniques? Well, Charlemagne's kind of an interesting person to include among the likes of Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun because he's known as the father of Europe. You know, he's known as a big creator of um, the majority of the countries that we still see today in Europe. And I call him the clandestine barbarian because of that very reason. I mean, you look at him throughout history, and yes, he was ruthless, but he also did a lot of good in terms of country-making. Um, and that one of the reasons why we included him as a barbarian was because he created this unsustainable hierarchy. He, a lot of what he did was based on his own strength of character and the alliances that he created himself. After he died, his sons could not um, live up to his expectations. So the empire began to crumble. And that's pretty much um, what, what we saw happening with Alan Greenspan's um, time at the Federal Reserve, is he created this... Uh, era of really cheap credit and funneled a lot of economic boom, but it was unsustainable. And after he left and after he finally realized that these really absurdly low interest rates were having an adverse effect on um, the availability of credit, then uh, as we saw, we, we saw the housing bubble burst, we saw the credit bubble burst, you know, within years of each other and within years of him leaving office. So that's the analogy that we made between um, Charlemagne and Alan Greenspan, and that's why we wanted to include somebody that didn't necessarily look like a barbarian from the outside, but really had um, grossly underestimated uh, the strength of his own policies. So you think what Bernanke has done is not following in Greenspan's footsteps? He's trying to do something, for, trying to live up to what Greenspan is doing and not doing a good job of it? 
I would agree. Ben Bernanke has a little bit of a more difficult job because we haven't he hasn't had the opportunity to make rate adjustments in a time of economic boom like Alan Greenspan did. Um, but he is doing what Greenspan did in, in the, uh, at, the, at the time of the tech bubble where, uh, and, and at the time of the Asian contagion when Greenspan first came into office. What he did was he drastically lowered interest rates and um, pretty much had credit available for when it was needed and threw a lot of money at the issue, and that helped at the time. Um, so what we've done in subsequent crises is followed that same model, and we haven't really learned from it. And, and we're seeing the effects of it now. We're creating an ever cheaper dollar, and the credit is, the, excuse me, the interest rates are still absurdly low. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally. Uh, her new book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter L. Noska provides those of you eager to invest well in real estate with the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus is to help you maximize your real estate investment dollars. Listen live to the brightest minds in investment real estate every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter L. Noska, where America learns to invest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman. My guest this hour is uh, Sarah Nunnally. Uh, She has come out with a new book called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, just tell people about the website for the book and uh, the newsletters that uh, you put out and how they can find those as well. Well, you can find uh, more information on the book at barbariansofwealth.com, and that will also provide you a link to, to buy it online. Um, but I also write a newsletter called Smart Investing Daily, which we talked about earlier. And if you, it's a free newsletter. comes out every day. And you can find more information on that at Taipan Publishing Group. Dot com, T-A-I-P-A-N, um, all one word, and I, I hope you enjoy looking through our stuff. Okay, the next barbarians you talk about are the Vikings, who you call savage pirates and savvy traders. How do they extend their power, and what are the implications of that for today? Well, the Vikings kind of got their start as exiles from Sweden. They were kind of the rabble-rousers in Scandinavia, and uh, a lot of younger men, I guess, would have you know, n- no ability to make their own way in their current societies, so they would you know, gather in groups and get on ships and go see if they could find their wealth elsewhere. And they made their way mainly into... Um, what's modern-day England now in Ireland and Scotland, and they found some really, really ripe pickings there. England was a very peaceful society at that point in time and and very religious and very um, education-oriented, so they didn't uh, have a lot in the way of defense against these pirates. And the churches themselves were very rich. The people um, really respected and helped fund a lot of churches. So you had things like gilded Bibles and, and gem-encrusted scepters, you know, that the bishops would use and, and those types of things. And the the Vikings would just sweep in unannounced to these um, rich houses, so to speak, and just take what they wanted and killed everybody and then left. Um, and what they ended up doing is they did that often enough that they would instead of having to uh, sail all the way back to Sweden or wherever they hailed from, from Norway or whatnot, um, they would set up winter camps in areas that they had frequently conquered and uh, some of the local people had kind of fled the area. So they had this uh, kind of base camp from which they could make other excursions into Ireland and into France and into uh, Denmark and whatnot. So these guys set up a network of what could be termed as shipping lanes um, to move wealth back and forth and eventually trade followed those same routes. Um, But it all started with this vicious cutthroat taking of other people's things. So what can people learn from their techniques in today's financial world? Well, you can... everything, Everything starts with greed, I think. And what these guys wanted was money, and they wanted to take over. They didn't care about the people there. They didn't care necessarily about um, the the religion of the area or the education that was going on in that area. They just wanted to set up um, a way of making money for themselves. And it turned out to be uh, a blessing in disguise in a way for certain things. I, I mean, Dublin was created as one of those wintered, wintering um, uh, stations where the Vikings would come and go and, and run excursions from, but it has transformed into this big city. So I think what people can take away is um, that everything comes, 
even even the stuff that appears to be good might have um, a violent underpinning. So you really need to dig deep and find out exactly what instrument it is that you're investing in, what it does, and um, what it should be doing for your portfolio. Because as we've seen, like with Goldman Sachs, who created um, these uh, collateralized debt obligations uh, and then bet against them, uh, you could see that creating part of the the credit bubble in in that they were selling these things with a triple A um, credit rating, and really they were just bundles of subprime mortgage crap that blew up in investors' faces. Um, and it created a lot of money to begin with, but it because it became because it started from um, a barbaric origin, so to speak, uh, the investors didn't know what they were getting. So you're saying that the investment banks packaging CDOs and all that today are similar to today's Vikings? Yes, I think so, because they've, they've set up these um, trading posts that were really conquered areas, um, and they really had disdain for the local populations, and the money funneling through was based on the backs of um, the, uh, the locals' hard work. And pretty much that you could, you could make an analogy to what had been happening in the uh, CDO world. There is a general complaint that a lot of the growth in the United States today is in the financial sector and not we're actually not making something, but we're shuffling around digits and uh, more and more of the profits and the jobs are not actually creating something real, but just all this kind of financial uh, you know, maneuvering one way or the other. Is that something you think is dangerous? Uh, I do. I mean, if you com- combine that with um, the idea that these financial institutions who are reporting very good earnings right now are also reporting earnings because they're taking money out of their reserves that are supposed to be put against future bad loans, you can kind of have the same empty profits and uh, empty growth, I would also call that. So, yeah, I think it, it could be a big problem in the future. Again. The next barbarian you talk about is Genghis Khan, who kind of conquered the... Soviet and the whole northern area. What, what uh, was his technique, and how can we learn from that? Genghis was um, pretty similar to Attila. He was the first in um, his tribe to be able to unite a lot of the surrounding tribes. And he did that mainly through conquering. He would go in and he would wipe out um, uh, another tribe's army, and then he would assimilate them into his own horde. And what he had to do in order to keep all these warlike tribes quiet was he had to go invade other people and bring in a lot more wealth. He had to kind of pay them off to be peaceful within the within their own unit. And it worked really, really well, but Genghis was on a constant campaign of always um, looking for um, another fight and looking for more wealth to bring into his um, community. And we can see that um, we can make the analogy with uh, Genghis Khan and with what um, how Citigroup came to be, because uh, Sanford Wheel, who was um, actually named as one of Time's top 25 people to blame during the financial crisis, um, he did the same thing. When he started um, in the financial industry, he started buying up itty-bitty little companies and becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually um, he became too big. And that's, and that's where Citigroup kind of had to get that $45 billion bailout from the government because it became too big. Uh, so I think that's the analogy that we're drawing from Genghis Khan and um, modern-day financial institutions that have always had to go out and find more sources of wealth and break more rules in order to get more wealth. 
you'd call it the, the brotherhood of power, with this concentration of power and, and the big banks particularly. What actually is the dangerous? Now, supposedly we just had this financial services deregulation or regulation forum, and part of that was too big to fail, is not allowed anymore, and supposedly this has all been solved by regulation. I don't think you, you believe that. Is that right? I don't, yeah, I, I don't believe that. Uh, one of the, it's a kind of ironic, one of the authors of the 2,400-page financial reform bill that was passed was um, Chris Dodd, who we profile in the book in our chapter on lobbying because he had a strong connection with uh, Countrywide Financial, and he received some um, very uh, cheap loans, I guess you could say. He got some bonus percents off of loans that, that helped him save tens of thousands of dollars, and he got his buddies in on it. And in, in exchange, he was the one, of, one of the ones who wanted to keep those lanes open for um, the investment banks and the, and, the, and the commercial banks. He wasn't for as much regulation at the time. So having that guy as an author kind of makes me a little suspect about what exactly is in that bill and how it is supposed to help protect the uh, American public. So describe what you mean by the brotherhood of power and, and you know, what, is, what is the danger of having this uh, strong concentration in the top banks? Well, the brotherhood of power comes can be applied to a lot of different areas of what we talk about. Um, the brotherhood of power was one one of the groups responsible for creating the the Federal Reserve. There was a bunch of uh, uh, bank CEOs and high high ups in in the financial institution that got together and um, said, if we're going to have this was after the 1907 panic where there were a lot of um, banks that. Um, experienced runs and and almost had to shut down, and it kind of uh, really stalled the American economy at the time. So um, the government wanted to create an institution that would shore up the banking system. So in, instead of having these uh, economic leaders come together, they had these financial institution leaders come together who had their own personal interests um, at heart and not necessarily those of the American public. So that's one section of it. And if you translate that into the brotherhood of power that's going on today, you have a lot of uh, reciprocal acts going on between uh, big banks and the federal government. And you see a lot of uh, players interchanging jobs between the government and uh, institutions as well. I mean, um, you saw Hank Paulson, who was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, go into government as the uh, Secretary of the Treasury. We also saw the next three CEOs after him go into government in various posi positions. Um, we saw uh, Alan Greenspan, who was um, one of the executives at J.P. Morgan, I think it was, and he was the head of the, F the Federal Reserve. So when you talk about the brother brotherhood of power um, and you talk about more of a fraternity-like stance of, of what's going on, both in our government and in the financial institutions, they're looking out more for each other than they are uh, the American public, and their policies are geared towards helping um, the brotherhood out and not necessarily being what's good for the economy. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally. Uh, her new book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. And we'll be back after this.
market's up or down. Or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally, uh, whose new book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Thanks, Jordan. We want to talk about the role of gold in uh, economies going in the, in the past and where it stands today. You have a whole chapter called Say Goodbye to Gold. Why don't you briefly talk about the role that gold has played uh, in economic development over the years and where it stands today? Well, we used to have a currency that was based on gold. Um, that means uh, a certain percentage of gold needed to be held per every dollar that we created. Um, and it, interestingly enough, back in 1933, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, made it illegal for any person to hold gold. So he confiscated all the gold and fined people who didn't turn over their gold. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to print more dollars. And the only way he could do that is if he got more gold. Um, so he immediately confiscated gold. I think they had like something like maybe 10 days or so in order to turn their gold in. And um, I, I could probably check on that. 25 days. I'm sorry. It was 25 days to turn in their gold to the Federal Reserve. And um, now that they had a certain amount of gold, they could print more dollars, which, of course, this was only four years after the um, huge uh, 
1929 stock market crash, and they were in a depression. So there was a reason why they wanted more money. Um, and I think, in a way, if you had to do it that way, you know, you might as well at least keep it backed in gold because that way your your currency is backed by something tangible, uh, which is not the case today. So the one thing that I don't hold well with what he did was after he confiscated all the gold, he immediately raised the value of gold from something like $22 to $35 per ounce. Um, and what that did was it allowed him to create even more of the paper money to dole out. And that kind of is, is what we're doing today without the backing of gold. So we had, we had all the gold in the Federal Reserve for some 40 years until uh, the Nixon era when um, everyone else kind of went off the gold standard around the world and the U.S. dollar was pegged to the price of gold and we ex- experienced these um, shockwaves with, with being able to export or um, the cost of exports and uh, it was decided then to go off the, uh, the gold standard, which is pretty much when gold went from $35 and spiked astronomically and we kind of haven't looked back since. Um, so we've been on a fiat currency, meaning we're not backed by anything by what, and, and, our, and, and our, um, the value of our currency is not uh, held by anything except what value we give it in comparison to other currencies. And that can be very dangerous because our Federal Reserve can print at will, um, and they don't have to necessarily say, okay, well, we have 100,000 ounces of gold that we just got in, and we can print 100,000 more dollars, even though that wasn't the one-to-one ratio. But they, they're not held to any standard anymore, and um, the printing press has, is really what has um, been the underpinnings of what we're seeing now with the erosion of the dollar. Do you think it would be a good idea to go back to the gold standard today? I think... If if we don't, I, I think the the U.S. dollar will at one at, at some point in time not be the the most widely held currency reserve in the world. I think because we're eroding, eroding our dollar so much that folks are going to say, well, I don't want to trade in dollars anymore. I don't want to hold uh, forex reserves in dollars anymore. I want to look for something else. Um, so if we don't at some point put a real value back into our currency, we're going to experience further erosion and further devaluation uh, as we continue to spiral down that road. What would be the replacement for the U.S. dollar in world trade if it was not gold? Um, I don't think there's a good one right now, to be honest with you. I think what you might see is countries starting to make deals um, allowed in their own currencies. I think we, we saw something along those lines between China and Brazil being able to trade commodities based in yuan and based in reales. So I think you're going to see some of those things pop up before you see another uh, major currency take over um, the, the U.S. dollar as the, as the reserve currency. I will say, however, that you are, are currently seeing a lot of gold demand from uh, international countries because they want to have at least some kind of balance um, to the dollar reserves that they hold right now. You look at history a lot here. In in the past, when civilizations had a gold-based currency and then devalued that currency over time and then started inflating their way out of it like the Romans and others, what, what tends to happen to those kind of societies and what is the end game when they do that? Well, uh, 
not not going back so far as the Romans, but if you want to if you want to talk about like the 1800s and the 1700s when people started creating um, a paper currency as opposed to um, trading in physical things, um, you could see that the printing press was was the enemy of every single economy, and it was mainly it was not just necessarily because they had. Um, uh, some eco- more economic problems. It was because of greed. These uh, institutions, these newly created institutions, were seeing a lot of interest in these fiat currencies, and more people would come, and they would say, "Well, I don't really have enough gold backed, you know, in held, you know, in, in our little basement here, but I do have a printing press, and those people don't necessarily see what's in my basement, so I can just tell them that this will be backed in gold." So they, out of greed, started printing more and more and more, and when it came time for these people to come calling and say, hi, I'd like to change my um, notes into gold. Uh, like if they were to go buy a house and they needed gold or if they need, needed to open a business that would, uh, needed gold, then they, they didn't have access to it because these institutions had just printed more money than, than they could. Um, and you saw some huge crises in, in France, especially um, after that currency um, was totally debunked after after just greed with the, with the printing press going out of control and i think that's what happens with, when economies rely um, on something other than the gold standard so you think something similar to that is happening today with the amount of money being printed not only domestically but in europe and japan and other places as well yeah i i absolutely do i i mean when you, when you look at the amount of uh, treasury bonds, which I, I think is almost another form of the printing press, when you look at the amount of treasury bonds that, that, that are being sold, um, those are all obligations that will need to be paid back. And we're just putting ourselves further and further into debt, and we're sopping up more and more taxpayer money in order to finance those bonds when the holders come calling for them. So, um, yeah, we're, we're in a very, very slippery slope right now. What are the investment implications for that today with all this printing going on around the world, uh, gold having gone up? How do you, do you invest to protect yourself in that environment? Well, you need to hold hard assets, and we dedicate a whole chapter to precious metals because of that. Um, basically, anything that's denominated in dollars, when you put more dollars into the system and devalue the dollar, it takes more of those dollars to buy things. So the value of those things based in uh, the price in dollars climbs. Um, and when you have uh, the ability to trade those hard assets um, in times of economic uncertainty, when, when the value of currencies decline, those become even more popular. So we're seeing high investment trends in the precious metal sector, particularly in gold. And I think everybody should be holding some kind of precious metals in their portfolio at some kind of level. And I'm not talking about gold mining stocks. I'm talking about physical gold, uh, be it through an ETF, through bullion, um, uh, through futures. Something along those lines uh, needs to be included in a portfolio just to hedge the rest of um, your positions. How high could gold in the next, say, two years or so? I mean, it's already up to 1350 or thereabouts. It's, it's been over 1400 How, you know, is this accelerating right now, or the amount of printing going on? We, well, gold climbed more than $300 an ounce last year, so we did see a sharp acceleration. I think we haven't seen the, the acceleration that um, the economic woes have called for uh, yet because the rest of the world is kind of in the same 
basket. We've seen Europe go through a bailout process with Greece and um, with Ireland and whatnot. Um, so the value of the euro had been unsteady as well. So you, you hadn't seen quite the inflation numbers with the U.S. dollar as you perhaps would have had, had our economic crisis been contained within our borders. Had we, you would have seen uh, gold prices probably top $2,000 an ounce. Um, over the next two years, I think we are going to trend higher. I don't think we'll get to 2000 an ounce um, unless the rest of the world spontaneously recovers and we're the only ones still sitting in the trenches. What happens when uh, there are bailouts? Like in the case of Europe, they bailed out Greece and Ireland and uh, Iceland, and now they're talking about Portugal and Spain and so on, and, and we had our bailouts at the banks. What kind of does that do to the economy long-term when you continue to have these bailouts and problems aren't actually addressed? Uh, if the problems aren't addressed, it creates a greater obligation um, that and put, puts even more burden on the people who are paying taxes because that's what those bailout monies are, are, are funded from is taxpayer dollars. Um, and if the underlying problems are not resolved, then those bonds and those bailouts aren't paid back. And what you have is um, a huge deficit. And we've seen recently um, the government has just started selling warrants like for Citigroup, and it, it expects to make a profit off of that. Um, but I think if you don't solve the underlying problem and you continue throwing money at it, then you're throwing money down the drain. And that's less money that you can put towards updating infrastructure. That's less money that you can invest in, in the economy and invest in um, things like schools or, or ener energy or thing, things that could create problems down the road for our economy anyway. So how would you actually solve the problem instead of, as you say, keep bailing people out? If you were not wanting to bail people out or countries or so on, how would you deal with the situation? Would they go into default? Um, I think in certain – when you're talking about countries, I think it's, it's a different situation. When you're talking about sectors, um, there could be ways to let them default and not have it collapse. Uh, I mean, like Greece and Ireland would be two examples. If you did it your way, you should not have bailouts. How, how would that have been handled? Uh, I don't have a good answer for that, and I don't think anybody else does, which is why we have only been bailing out with money. I think if you can create um, programs, I think Greece was creating an austerity program um, that nobody liked but that was desperately needed. I think you can combine uh, ways of, of giving them the ability to get out of the situation themselves with the with the bailout money that you give them as well. So you're not just throwing money at it, you're also providing a solution at the same time that that will hopefully give them economic stability in the long term. I guess the current domestic uh, situation would be the uh, the states where they have yeah. huge deficits. They're clearly going to come to the US government wanting a bailout. You're right. saying they should not be bailed out and maybe you should let some of the states go bankrupt. I think you can handle you can handle bailouts in different ways. You can offer programs that will create infrastructure. One of the things that I didn't like about the um, the stimulus extension was that um, bonds for for in infrastructure were not being sold anymore. And those bonds actually create jobs. Those bonds actually go towards something that makes a state more efficient. Um, and I think if you if you attach 
bail out money to something along those lines, then that's where it can do the most good, and that's where we should be putting money. But um, money just to kind of say, okay, this is a Band-Aid, and hopefully your economy will get better in two years or five years or whatever the, the time frame is. And if it's not, then okay, we'll take the loss on the chin. I don't think that's a viable alternative anymore. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally. Uh, her new book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011 on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman. Uh, my guest this hour is Sarah Nunnally. Uh, her book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Financial Attilas. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Thanks, Jordan. You have a whole section about uh, what you call the political uh, barbarians uh, and how the moneyed class kind of rules things. Uh, again, how, how does that work, I mean, and what's the downside to having a political class running things? Well, if you look at um, the history of our first Congress, um, 
you could see that more than half of them were lawyers. Another 25% owned large commercial farms. Um, all of them had previously held public office. They were governors. These people were pedigreed, I guess you could say, and they were kind of born into um, high-class society. So their experience has been in, in one section of society, and um, their I, I, allegiance, I guess you could say, was to the, the folks within that same class. And we haven't gotten much further from that as we've um, come through history. As I was telling you before, the, the folks in the CEO positions in big institutions have also held high positions in government, and that can create a severe conflict of interest, I think, um, in how you run your policies and what policies you implement and um, who they're supposed to benefit. So I think when you come from a certain section of group that's used to holding a certain amount of power and a certain amount of wealth, that can kind of um, blind you to certain policies that might be more beneficial for uh, the society as a whole or the economy as a whole. It's funny because when you talk about this, it almost sounds like Karl Marx. It's like it, you, know, the, you have to have the proletariat take over from the ruling classes, and it should be run by the people and everything will be fine. It's kind of a, a, a communist, socialist uh, message is kind of what it sounds like. That's probably not where you're coming from, but you see how, how it sounds that way. Yes, certainly. Have there, um, in fact, been times when things have been run by the so-called people, not the, the upper classes? Right. I, I think... I, and I don't want to sound communist, because I, I just want to, uh, to show people how capitalism can create an even bigger wedge between high, higher classes and upper classes and very, the very, very rich and the rest of us that are down here that are still trying to save for our retirement. And that's not necessarily to say, oh, we need to redistribute the wealth. We, we just need to take a look at uh, the policies that are put in place and see who they're benefiting, because the economy does not necessarily just run on those um, upper-class societies. Um, and you have the 10% unemployment rate. Who is the 10% that's unemployed? It's not necessarily the, the folks in the upper class. It's the folks in the middle class and the, and the lower class. And the jobs section right now is the biggest part of this um, ongoing crisis. And when you look at what's been happening in, in, in the past with certain recessions, um, wages have kind of been stalwart. They've, they've slipped slowly, but in this recession that has not been the case. So you've had people taking a huge amount of pay cuts, and how are those folks supposed to recoup, or recoup their wealth and, and, and save their homes and put their kids through college if the policies that are put in place are only benefiting a certain section of society? We could say that the genius of America has been the creation of a broad middle class that did benefit from capitalism. And that's what's been eroded lately. I mean, it, and that's somewhat unique in, in world history, I think. It usually has been a very small amount of people at the top, and then vast majority of people not having that much. So how can that be kind of reinvigorated, not only here, but I mean, you could say that the same thing is happening today overseas in China, in India, in Brazil, where there is a, a broad middle class being created. Right, and I, I would agree with you. I think capitalism... Um 
and I'm not against capitalism, and this book is not to be meant against capitalism. This, this book is meant to be against self-serving, greedy people who are supposedly um, supposed to be generating wealth for individuals when they're gener- instead generating wealth for themselves. Um, and in one of our other newsletters that we talk about, Taipan Daily, um, Justice Lytle is our editorial director, and he's saying that capitalism has always had something of a winner-take-all, which is what you're talking about, but right now we're reaching a point where the system is starting to eat itself. And there's not going to be much left for anybody if we continue to destroy um, the economic prosperity that's still remaining. You have, uh, towards the end of your book, a thing on protection strategies, and you say that diversification is the key to wealth protection. If you have all this underlying inflation that you're talking about happening, uh, how does diversification help you if you have money and assets they get hurt by inflation, bonds, for example. I mean, so why, why do you want to diversify when you think there's going to be so much inflation caused by all this money being printed? Well, diversification isn't necessarily just with sectors. It's, it's with different asset classes. And one of the um, things that we refer to in, in the diversification chapter is something called the um, permanent portfolio strategy. Harry Brown was a free market analyst who came up with this um, idea and basically what he was saying is that there are four different asset classes that you need to be invested in all equally 25% each and he's saying um, 25% stocks which would thrive with economic prosperity um, he's saying 25% in long-term bonds which balance deflationary pressures um, he's saying 25% in gold which would counter that inflation that you're talking about and then he's saying 25% in cash or in um, money markets which would offer some sort of safety. So by being broadly invested in in those four asset classes, you could be somewhat protected from inflationary uh, pressures that we are probably going to see in the the next couple years. But should, you know, stocks continue to rise, you are still invested in in that part of the market as well. So the diversification balances it out and takes advantage of where things are, are rising and helps counter where things are falling. How is a portfolio, a permanent portfolio like that, done over the long term? Um, there was a study done between 1970 and 2003 where this uh, strategy returned um, 9.7% a year on average. So you had some years that did gangbusters and some that were not so bad. Um, but overall, I think the losses were very, very minimal, particularly because you were, you were balanced with things like gold and cash. And how would you, if, if you want to implement a permanent portfolio today, would you use exchange-traded funds, or how would you take those, e- easily get those four uh, sections of the portfolio? Absolutely. I think ETFs, uh, the thing with ETFs that you need to be careful of is how much they're leveraged and what their fees are. That's the one thing that you uh, should definitely look into in any ETF that you're going to buy. That said, I think... ETFs offer unprecedented access to certain things like gold and silver and even agricultural commodities that we didn't have access to um, a couple years ago, which can also combat inflation. Um, So I think ETFs are a great tool to use in a number of different um, areas for this because there are some ETFs that um, are based on bond yields and, and things of that nature, too. So just do your homework, particularly with the, with the fees and how they're leveraged. But I think ETFs are a wonderful resource. Very good. All right, well, thank you very much. My guest this hour has been uh, Sarah Nunnally. Uh, her book is called Barbarians of Wealth, Protecting Yourself from Today's Attilas. 
website for her book is barbariansofwealth.com. And you've been a wonderful guest. Thanks for so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Sarah. Thank you, Jordan. It's been fun. Thank you. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. 